Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I think if each one of us was honest, we would admit that we carry some type of burden. Whether that be spiritual, emotional, physical, financial, each one of us carries a burden in our own life for ourselves or for others, Lord. Father, you are the great physician who promises to take away the pain and the suffering, things of this world that cause us to be burdened. And Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord, petitioning you to do exactly that. Reach deep inside of each one of us, Lord. Touch us where we need touched. Remove the burdens that are so heavy in our life. Take those away. And Lord, I pray that we will find freedom in you. Lord, we thank you as a father that you care and you love us so much that you would do that for us. Our prayer is that you do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Brian. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, and I hope you did, I'm going to ask you to open to the book of Joshua, Old Testament book of Joshua. We've been studying that for several weeks. We took a break for two weeks. We're going to get back into it today. I'll be honest with you and tell you that at the end of this message, you may not leave feeling really good. You need to come back next week for the second part of the message. You'll feel a lot better. But we cannot skip over passages like this, or we don't do any justice to the Word of God or our walk with Christ. So we have to take a close look at it, and we're going to this morning. Joshua chapter 7. Now before we get into that, let me share with you a little bit of background information that we've already covered, but we have to set this table, or you may look at what we're about to read, and it will give you such pause that you'll think that doesn't make any sense at all. So follow me through just a little bit of background information. We already know that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, had been wandering in the desert for 40 years after they had come out of Egyptian captivity. Moses was leading them. Moses died before they went into the promised land. There were reasons for that. We don't have enough time to go back through it. But Joshua became the leader of the Hebrew people. His job was to get them into the promised land to obey all that God had commanded them through him and through Moses that they might live forever with God as their king. Be a spectacular relationship. In order for that to happen, Joshua had to lead them across the Jordan River, and he did. It happened in miraculous ways. Once they got to the other side of the river, they had to consecrate their hearts. They had to be prepared for what was coming next. They had to be fully devoted to the Lord. In order for that to happen, God told them that they had to do something pretty dramatic, things that maybe some of us would have questioned. All of the men, 40 years and younger, had to be circumcised. Before they could go into their first military battle, that's what they had to do. And they did, without question. Then they went to the city of Jericho and they marched around that city for six days. They marched around it one time a day, then went back to their camp. On the seventh day, they marched around it seven times, blowing trumpets and shouting to the Lord. When they shouted, the walls came down and the Israelites routed the Canaanites, the people living inside the city of Jericho. It was their first victory in the promised land, and they were walking tall as a result of it. They felt really good about what had happened. They were fully aware of the fact that victory was always just one step ahead of them. All they had to do was trust the Lord unto that victory, 
And they would have it. They knew it. I want you to see what the Bible says about these people at that particular juncture. Listen to this. It's in chapter 6, the 27th verse. So you're in Joshua 7. Just go up one verse and listen to this. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. The people trusted Joshua. They trusted God. They knew that they were about to possess the promises of the Lord, and they were excited about it. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11 says that Moses described the promised land to them as a land full of hills and valleys. Now, arguably, he was discussing the topography of the land when he said that. But as is often the case with God, there is another illustrative point underneath it. God wasn't just telling them that they could expect the topography to be full of hills and valleys. He was telling them that their lives in the promised land would also be full of hills and valleys, high points and low points. More often than not, the emotional roller coaster that they would be on would be tied to their spiritual decisions, the things that they chose to do with their relationship with God. That's what would take them from the highest of peaks to the lowest of valleys. It was a great illustration. Now, we might say at the end of chapter 6, after the fall of Jericho, when Joshua's fame was spreading through all the land and the Israelite people were feeling awful full of themselves, that they were standing on top of the highest hill. They are about to go to the lowest valley. And it's going to happen very quickly. Very quickly. Let's get into chapter 7 and I'll show you how fast it's coming. Chapter 7, verse 1. But, we only have to go one word into this chapter to see that they are on their way down. But, listen again to verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. We're so proud of what we've done, so proud of of what God has accomplished. And we are about to possess all of his promises. But, when you find an ominous word like that in the Bible, you back up and find out what it is connected to. When one little word like this jumps off the page at you, it is imperative that you back up so that you can see what's happening. God is telling you through this three-letter word that you better pay attention because though they are up here on the highest of hills, they are about to descend quickly. All through that one word, but. And I want you to see what that's tied to. Still in verse 1, listen to this. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. They broke faith. Now that's quite an interesting term. If you want to get into biblical dictionaries and try to figure out what that means, that they broke faith, you're going to fail. You have to figure out the definition of this for yourself, what it means to break faith. Here's my definition of this. It means that they no longer cared about the things that God said. They were no longer trusting the Lord. They believed, be it ever so subtly, that the victory had come by their own steam. It didn't have a lot to do with God. They had pulled this off. That's how Jericho fell. They did it. They were pounding their chest. They were walking around crowing like roosters in the morning. They believed that they had done this on their own. They broke faith with God. When they broke faith with God and started to take credit for their victories, the things that had mattered to them prior to this moment no longer mattered. 
they broke faith. That's a devastating place to be. Now, I want you to see what happens in the rest of this chapter. It is so pointed and so powerful and direct that I want to encourage you to stand as we read this out of respect for the Word of God. Picking up in verse 1, we read, For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. Now, Real quick, take a look at the mistake Joshua just made and all of the people of Israel just made. Joshua was listening at this point to the opinions of man rather than seeking God. Leading up to right here in Scripture, Joshua would have allowed God to direct every one of their steps. God would have told them everything they were supposed to do, every move they were supposed to make. But now all of a sudden, Joshua is standing in the council of men. What a horrible decision that was. You heard what happened. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. They just got routed. There were only a few warriors in the city of Ai. They had just defeated Jericho, the biggest city in the region. They were proud of themselves, and now they're on the run because Joshua listened to men instead of God. That will become much more apparent in just a minute. The men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. Would that we would have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan in slavery or in the desert. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now, in the midst of his own mistakes, Joshua is blaming who? God. Isn't that interesting? Verse 10, Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, and they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. 
And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, the, near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and stoned him with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Go ahead and have a seat. But keep your finger there in Joshua chapter 7. We're going to bounce around a little bit in Scripture, but we're going to keep coming back here. Now, there are several things that jump out of this story that bear exploration. We don't have enough time to go into every one of those, so I just want to pull out the biggest ones, starting with this. When we look at this, it becomes very apparent that an entire group of people were punished for one man's sin. And that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't make sense to us. Unless we unpack all of the bags associated with this passage, it will remain unclear to us why that happened. So here's the answer. The people of Israel, the Hebrew people, were one people before God. They were not a collection of tribes. They were not a collection of clans or families or individuals. They were one people before God. They had a special relationship with the Lord, unlike anyone else ever in history. Even today, no one had a relationship or has a relationship with the Creator like Israel did. And at this particular point in time, everything should have been perfect All of these people had been provided for by God in the wilderness. All of them had been delivered from slavery. All of them had lived under the promises of God when they moved into the Holy Land. All of them were consecrated before the Lord. They were the children of God as one people. And when one person fell, the nation fell. One person's sin would impact everyone. It has been well said that we need to never disregard the amount of destruction that can come through one man living outside of the will of God. 
Joshua chapter 7 demonstrates that perfectly for us. You see, the relationship that they had with the Lord was so intimate that God said, I don't want anything to mess with this. It was so intimate that God would give them tiny little details to protect the relationship. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Keep your finger there in Joshua 7, but turn back to the left, to the book of Deuteronomy with me. Deuteronomy chapter 23. This chapter of the Bible contains some details from the Lord that are very, very, very small, very pertinent, and at times very gross. Here's what I mean by that. God was so interested in the relationship that he had with these people that he gave them instructions on where to build their bathrooms. That's how small things got to protect this relationship. Now, he gave them other instructions along the same lines, but I want you to see just this one that's associated with where they were to build their toilets. Picking up in verse 12, listen to this. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. God is actually giving them details for where and how to go to the bathroom. Now, that's not just this random idea, though it may have to do with with sanitation and making sure that from a health perspective, everybody remains healthy. And there's no question that God did it for that reason. But the primary reason that God would say that follows in verse 14. Listen to this. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. That's why God said, I want you to build your toilets outside of the camp. I want you to keep this place clean. I want you to keep this place holy. I want you to make sure that you do things the right way. Are you ready? Because of this. Because I will walk among you. I am in your camp. I'm here all the time. And I don't want to have to walk past things that are disgusting, so take it outside the camp. Isn't that cool? I live here and I don't want to look at your filth. Parents, how many of you have wanted to say that to your children at times? <laughs> Clean your room. I live here, and I don't want to look at that. Clean your room. In essence, that's what God was just saying. I will walk among you. I am here, and I want to be comfortable in this place. So do things the right way. Take care of things the right way. That's the relationship they had. And then that carried over to the devoted things, things that God would lay out for them as his, things that he would say was important. He expected them to pay attention to those details as well. And if as a nation they wouldn't or they couldn't, consequences would follow. So let's take a look at the person that brought all of this destruction on them. Once we understand that as a people, they had this special relationship with the Lord, intimate relationship with the Lord where he walked among them, we have to get into the sin that caused the fall. It all started with a man named Achan. His name means trouble. That's what it meant when his parents gave him that name, and today that's what the name Achan means. You don't see a lot of parents today naming their young boys Achan. Why do you want to start that ball rolling right from the beginning? Name him trouble and see what happens. 
He has been recorded by Joshua as the troubler of Israel, and Jewish tradition has remembered him just like that. Scripture holds him forth as the person who has brought trouble to the nation, and everybody knew it, and everybody knows it today. His problem came when he mishandled the devoted things, the things that God had said belonged to him. And Achan was fully aware of that. Now, you heard the list that he gave. There was a coat, there was some gold, there was some silver. He saw it, he wanted it, he took it. That's exactly the way it played out. The problem is, all of that happened inside the city of Jericho, and God had instructed them to leave it all alone. In fact, God took it further than that. He said, that's all mine. Because Jericho was the first city to fall, all of the spoils inside of there belonged to the Lord as the first fruit offerings. They were to be placed in the treasury of the tabernacle. They belonged to God. If Achan had been patient, he would have found out that God had a, a plan in place to bless all of the soldiers and all of the families and all of the tribes. But Achan ran ahead of God and he caused all of these problems. Now here's what the Bible says about the devoted things. Let's go back to chapter 6 again. Pick up with me in verse 18. This is God giving instructions through Joshua. But you, speaking to all of the soldiers, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. That was God's plan for Jericho. Achan couldn't follow God's plan. He messed it up. And he brought all of this trouble on the nation. Now you might say it isn't fair, it just isn't right that one man's decision would cause this. Well, you need to be aware of the fact that this isn't the only time in Scripture that somebody else bore the consequences of one person's disobedience. Abraham's disobedience almost cost the life of his wife. David made a decision to count the fighting men rather than to trust God. His disobedience caused the death of 70,000 fighting men. 70,000 people died because of David's decision. Jonah and his disobedience almost sank a ship. When we get into the New Testament, we find teaching that tells us that when the body is operating the way it's supposed to, we celebrate with everybody and we hurt with everybody because everybody can bring destruction on the body if we're not careful. That's what Achan did by mishandling the devoted things. He fell into sin and his sin caused all of these problems. Now hopefully you were paying attention in chapter 7 to see exactly what that sin looks like. Go back there with me. We'll pick up in verse 20. And I'm going to show you the four common steps of sin. Joshua questioned Achan and wanted to know what he had done. This is what Achan said. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, here's the four-step pattern of sin. He saw something, he coveted it, he took it, and then he tried to hide it. 
That's the four-step pattern of sin that is in play at almost every moment when we fall into sin. The same thing. He saw it, he coveted it, he took it, and then he tried to hide it. Now, you might sit here and think to yourself, I'm not sure how that works, so let's break them all down. Here we go. It was not his first view of all of these things, the gold, the silver, and the cloak, that was sin. Not at all. It was the second view. It is always the second look that causes problems. Men, you know how this works. You're walking down the street, you see an attractive lady, you think to yourself, my word, she's an attractive lady, and then your eyes go back the second time. The first view was nothing more than acknowledgement. The second view is a problem. When you let your eyes go back the second time, the ball is rolling and you are headed towards trouble. Ladies, the same thing works for you. You're walking down the street, you see a good-looking man, and you think to yourself, gosh, he's good-looking, and then you just move on, no problem. But when you turn your eyes back again, it is that second look that gets you in trouble. Well, Achan obviously looked the second time. He didn't just say, wow, look at that gold, look at that silver, look at that cloak. That's going to be wonderful in the treasury of the Lord. Not at all. He looked at it and said, that would look wonderful in my house. And he wanted to take it home with him. And his eyes started to figure out how to make that happen. He would actually add a fifth step. And really quite an interesting one when you look at it. He changed the name of the devoted things. Listen to that. He changed the name of the devoted things. He stopped referring to them as the devoted things to the Lord, and he called them the spoils. That made it easier for him to look upon them and think that they belonged to him rather than to God. These are the spoils of war, and I'm one of the fighting men. They belong to me. I was in here fighting just like everybody else was. These are simply the spoils of war, and we know that the spoils belong to us, so I have every right to take these. When we change the name of the devoted things, we are justifying our actions. When we do away with the biblical terms that are attached to sin, we are simply trying to make it okay for us to do what we want to do. When we change the devoted names, we are in a bad, bad place. Folks, when you read the Bible and the Bible tells you that something is wrong, you have to accept it as that. We have a number of people today that will take things out of Scripture and they'll say, well, you know, that was just something that happened a long time ago. That's how God felt a long time ago. It doesn't apply today. Yes, it does. We'll have people that will say, culture has changed. Therefore, this is okay in popular culture. Even though the Bible would prohibit it, popular culture says it's okay. No, it's not. If God's Word calls it sin, it is sin. If God says don't do it, don't do it. That's a devoted thing. If God says do it, then do it. That's a devoted thing. The Bible, speaking of this very issue, would say this in the book of Isaiah. If you want to turn over with me to the fifth chapter of that book, the 20th verse, keep your finger in Joshua 7, but turn over there. You'll see what the prophet says about this. Woe to those who call evil good. And good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. If it's bitter, call it bitter. If it's sweet, call it sweet. If it is evil, it remains evil. God hasn't changed. 
If God said, this is devoted, you leave it devoted. I like the way Solomon would address that. This is found in Ecclesiastes. He's the wisest man to ever live. In the 12th chapter of this book, the 13th verse, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's it. If God said it, that settles it. If God said it, it hadn't changed. Unless you receive a memo directly from him, don't let anybody convince you otherwise. It's still that way. Don't change the names of the devoted things and believe that simply by calling it something else makes it all right. It's not. That was part of the sin of Achan. He changed the name, was no longer devoted, and it became spoils. When he did that, it set the stage for the second move. He coveted. He coveted. Coveting, very simply, is the irrational emotional response that we all have when we desire something too strongly. It is the irrational emotional response that we all have when we desire something too strongly. Coveting is the last of the Ten Commandments. It is the exclamation point in that list because God knows how powerful it is in our lives. Anybody ever coveted anything? I did just a couple weeks ago. Here's how it worked. I had all four steps ready to go. I'd gone out to Libiato to talk with Brian Stewart. I wasn't shopping. I was out there to talk with him. That's all it was. And I pulled into the lot, and we were visiting a little bit, and they have a Ford, I just lost the name of it, Platinum, sitting there, a Ford Platinum pickup, beautiful truck. I looked at it, no sin yet. (laughs) Then I looked again, sin started. And then I took it a step further. I said, well, Brian, we're here talking. Why don't we go sit in the cab of that pickup and have this conversation? I sat in it and I sinned. I coveted the truck. I said, Brian, how much is this truck? He told me I about swallowed my tongue and thought there is no way in the world I could ever afford a truck like this. I will never drive a Ford Platinum. I know that will never happen. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how could I make that happen? Hmm. And I I started to think to myself, my wife would look really good in this pickup. She needs this truck. So I was going to pull her into my sin. And I actually went so far as to offer Brian a trade on her rig. I said, I'll bring hers in. Let's get this whole thing going. And we're driving this truck home. Now, he was going to have to give about twice what we paid for that rig in order for us to get into the platinum. So I knew it wasn't really going to work. But God is God. And if he wanted me to have it, it would have all worked out. Didn't work out. That's how coveting works. Happens to me all the time if I'm driving past Libby Auto or Timberline Auto Sales and I look over there at the trucks and I think, and only the Fords, the rest are sin, but I look at the, <laughs> look at the Fords and I think, amen, thank you. And I get myself in trouble all the time. And that's what Aiken did. He coveted and the sin ball was rolling. And then he acted on it. And this is where it got really bad. It got really bad. He took it. He had changed the name of the devoted things. He coveted them so strongly that it caused that irrational emotional response in him that forced him to act upon it, and he took it. James chapter 1 tells us exactly how that works. Once we have progressed through coveting, this is the pattern that is at play. Verse 14 of chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He moved out of coveting into action, and he sinned. It's the same thing David did when he was standing on the roof looking at Bathsheba. He coveted and he sinned. Oh, he justified everything. He did everything that Achan did. And then he sinned. He took it. And that's where Achan was at. And he followed it up with this really interesting idea. He took it all back and buried it in his tent, believing that he could hide it from God. Now, in a moment of transparency, let me just ask, how many of you, when you have sinned, have tried to hide it from God? See the pattern and how it works? We try to hide it from God. I was researching this message out this past week, looked up at least a dozen passages, Old Testament and New, that tell us that that is impossible. For the sake of time, we can't go through all of them. I'm just going to ask you to trust me. You cannot hide it from God. Because remember, God walks among the camp. God sees it all. He's there. He sees it all. You cannot hide it. Adam and Eve tried to hide it. God found them in the garden. Everybody since then has tried to hide it. Same pattern of sin. We see something. We covet it. We take it. And then we try to hide it. And it doesn't work. It never works. So once we understand why the nation paid the price for this and we understand Achan's sin, we find ourselves saying, gosh, what do I do with this? And that's what I want to leave you with this morning, with a reminder to come back next week for the good news, for the redeeming part of this story. But here's the takeaway that I want you to chew on over the course of this week. So let these things just kind of soak in. We are almost done. Just hang with me on this. When we sin, It always touches our community. When we sin, it always, listen, it always, make sure you catch this, it always, in fact, say it with me, it always touches our community. If that sin involves your marriage, husbands, your sin touches the community of your marriage. Wives, the sin that you have committed touches the community of your marriage. Sometimes it touches the community of your family, your children, your parents, your extended family. That's your community. And sometimes your sin touches the community that you live in. And sometimes it touches the community of your church. But it always, it always, say it again with me, it always touches our community. So we have to be very careful about that. Because the impact of our choices has ripple effects that go out from us into other people's lives. When it touches the church, the church has to respond. We have six elders, godly men, that have to deal with very difficult things at times. Sometimes it's just a joy for them to go to a meeting. Other times they have to deal with very difficult things. And I would tell you from watching them for the past 14 and some odd months, 14 years, some odd months, that the most painful times for them is when another person's sin touches the community of the church and they have to deal with it. There's nothing pleasant about it. It's extremely difficult. They understand what it was like for Joshua when they had to bring Achan before him. Our elders have had to deal with that same thing because sin touches community. And they have the God-given responsibility to protect this community. So don't ever think that your sin goes away unscathed. Sometimes the felt effects of it are the guilt and the conviction in your own life, but sometimes it goes beyond you 
and touches your community. You be careful about that. But still we would say, well, that isn't fair. And in Achan's situation, it isn't fair. It shouldn't have been the way it was. Achan got a raw deal and the Israelites got a raw deal. Well, my friends, always trust this. That what life does to you is often determined by what life finds within you. What life does to you is often determined by what life finds within you. Achan had the opportunity to stand up before they went to Ai and say, we need to not do this because of what I've done. Let's not go into battle. He had the opportunity to confess his sin and come clean, and he didn't do it. And as a result of that, they fell. There are always ways for us to make sure that our sin is minimalized. But more than that, we have the wonderful opportunity to get further and further away from sin. Listen to the Apostle John in the book of 1 John. He writes in the second chapter, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John simply saying, get further and further away from the world and deeper and deeper into righteousness and relationship with God and allow those desires of the past to be nothing but a distant memory, a little blip in your rearview mirror and grow closer to God and these things won't matter. Grow in relationship with God and get away from those things. The Bible actually gives us a pattern for how that can happen. This is found in the book of 2 Peter, first chapter, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's just saying, grow, grow. Make sure that your walk with Christ is always increasing and you do it by adding those things to your knowledge of who Jesus is, to your faith. You grow in Christ and the hold the world has on you will lessen. The effect of sin will lessen. Oh, mercy is there for us and grace is there and we have the opportunity to live in that grace as we grow in relationship with God and every one of us should. That's the new covenant. That's what we sang about at Calvary. We have the chance to turn our attention toward the cross of Jesus Christ and move away from sin and into relationship with Him. And that's a relationship that is fully redeemed and brings the presence of God into our camp. And shouldn't that be the very thing that we want? We'll talk about that more next week. I hope you'll be here for that. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father, without a doubt, we just covered difficult things in this passage things that we all understand. Try as we might to say that they're not a part of our life, we can't do that. They are. The sin of Achan is not much different than our own sins. What we do with that is up to us. Thank you for giving us a place that we can leave it and allow it to be redeemed. Thank you for giving us grace. I pray, Lord, that we will live in that. In Jesus' name, amen.